HVAC 360 is brought to you today by... Have you ever thought about how many people you've been in contact with just by pumping gas or opening a door at a store? Next thing you know, you'll be itching your nose or licking Cheeto dust from your fingers, and now you have the coronavirus. Oh man, game over. If there was just a way to avoid touching your face. But wait, now there is with the new human head cone. You've seen them on your pets for years, and now it's your turn to save your own life. With velveteen collars and rain diversion holes, we have all the best features at one low price. Need that in safety orange with reflective tape for the job site? We have that too. Act fast and get yours today because they're selling like toilet paper. Everybody, welcome back. Matt Nelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. I do that, as always, by sharing information, specific lessons learned in the field, or talking with industry experts. If all this information leaves you hungry for more, you can always sign up for my weekly newsletter over at HVAC360.com or subscribe to my YouTube channel. All right, so what's up for this week? This week, I'm dishing out some highlights from a session that I attended at the ASHRAE conference in the beginning of February. Ah, conferences. You remember those? All right, well, anyway, this session was about improving indoor air quality by avoiding common mistakes. Uh, This is one of the topics that I've kind of been gravitating towards with my um, uh, doing more building enclosure things. So uh, I wanted to hit this one up. What I liked about this session especially was that it was from three different perspectives. Uh, We had architects, we had an engineer, uh, we had a contractor. um, And, you know, I'd like to give a shout out to the speakers. Um, They're really, really great. Uh, Fiona Aldis, Norm Nelson, no relation, and George DeBose. um, They were the three people talking, and they're great. Uh, If you ever have a chance to hear them speak, go ahead and do that. Uh, They won't disappoint. Um, Again, these are my takeaways and interpretations of what I wanted to really share with you. Um, They're only a fairly fraction of the information that uh, they shared, and it might differ slightly from the session, what I had to offer. Obviously, what I wrote down in my notes may not be exactly what came out of their mouth. So uh, take it with a grain of salt. But all this stuff is good uh, information. All right. So starting off from the architect's perspective, um, really the focus here is on control layers. Now, you may not necessarily be familiar with control layers. Um, three of the most popular ones are an air barrier, uh, water barrier, thermal barrier. Um, really, uh, the air barrier, obviously, that prevents the flow of air in and out of a building. Uh, normally, I mean, we're not talking doors and windows here, but through any sort of any sort of openings. We want to be able to make a building airtight, and that's supposed to be continuous. Um, same thing with water. Typically, and this is probably most of everybody's concern, they want to be able to keep water, bulk water, out of the building. Um, that layer needs to be continuous as well. And not to mention the thermal layer. Now, this is not only, I mean, most of the mechanical people, HVAC, related people um, are going to think of insulation. But not only that, but we need to talk about uh, windows as well. 
they are very, very important. Um, there is thermally broken windows, and there's other things that you know kind of you know stick outside of a building that kind of conduct uh, heat um, or you know encourage the movement of heat uh, from you know warm to cold. Anyway, the fact here is that uh, it was stated that these need to be continuous. If not, you got you got some problems. Um, anywhere from controlling humidity, obviously bulk water is a big issue. Uh, if that starts showing up, obviously you're going to start ruining inter- interior finishes. You're going to start developing microbial growth. And if the, uh, the holes are big enough, obviously insects are going to get in there as well, and that's not going to be something that you want for your building. All right, so why did these happen? Uh, Some of the root causes that were pointed out are some of the misunderstandings and details. Sometimes an architectural detail, just like a mechanical detail, is not very clear. They're missing, uh, you know, it could be just from an arrow pointing to the wrong location, uh, specifying something uh, differently, or it uh, there might be a detail that's uh, that's missing from a particular um, particular spot in the building. Um, just as we can't detail every single piping configuration and uh, equipment configuration that we have on a project, uh, you know, the same can be said for architects. They can't detail every single every single condition. The building's just too complicated. Um, architects like to have, um, uh, I guess they 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 take look over function sometimes when they get, you know, they want a building to look a certain way, and sometimes that's in direct conflict with making the building as resilient as possible. So sometimes it's those judgment calls, look over function, uh, creates some of these areas um, where uh, you can have discontinuity. Obviously, poor component choices. If, if you're selecting the wrong components for whatever reason, if it's maybe it's the specifications, maybe you didn't change the specifications, uh, and a different component gets in there. I mean, there's one of the things that I find very fascinating about the building enclosure is that there are a lot of components out there, and they're coming up with new, uh, you know, new materials, uh, new formulations all the time, and it's hard to keep track of those. Um, and lastly, it's the the lack of the design review. Um, when you don't look, uh, have a thorough design review, the same with commissioning, uh, the building enclosure is the same way. If you're not looking at uh, the design. It might uh, you might miss some things that are going to lead to these causes. So, not only that, not only some of these root causes uh, on the design side, but you're going to have some f- you know field issues uh, that are going to compound it as well. Um, things like com- the lack of planning and coordination, um, you know, because these systems are put together by multiple trades, and the order of the order in which they do them, you know, it can vary. Um, you know, some contractor might not be on the site. Maybe you know the mason wants to get going. Maybe that the uh, you know the you know the, the general contractor wants to get his thing done, and the air barrier contractor, you know, might be doing you know this part of the building one day and another part of the building the other day, just to kind of satisfy people. So that that whole timing, the whole lack of planning and coordination and making sure that these these 
layers are continuous um, really pour into these problems. Obviously, you get a contractor purchasing cheaper systems. Sometimes that slips by in the uh, submittal process and uh, causes these issues. Um, obviously, we build buildings outside, so excessive moisture. Um, it could, you know, they could end up sealing up a building before it completely dries out. You could get moisture in there, and I've, I've seen a number of cases um, where that is, is true. And then, you know, dictating schedule over quality, um, making sure that because they have to open up the building and they have all these, all these, you know, all these thousands of, you know, hundreds of thousands of um, components. Well, maybe that's a little bit of exaggeration, but there's a lot of components that need to go in in a certain order. And when you're pushing that schedule, um, sometimes quality slips through the cracks um, because you need to get it done on time. So you're kind of rolling the dice and making sure, you know, kind of hoping that what you're, the quality that you're not focusing on isn't going to really damage the building too much. So uh, talking about engineering, this got uh, a little bit interesting. He talked about controlling the indoor dew point um, and some of the root cause root causes that uh, the engineer started to talk about is when you have ventilation air, making sure that it's dry enough. Um, if it isn't dry enough, then some of the systems inside may not be able to handle it or you know, aren't designed to handle it. Um, you could have overcooling of surfaces. If you're, if you're blowing on a surface, uh, blowing air on a surface, uh, there is a possibility of condensation. And condensation typically is, is what we're talking about here uh, when we talk about the mechanical systems. Um, not sealing ductwork is, is another big one. Building pressurization, uh, go into that a little bit more. And then controlling the chilled water temperatures. If obviously, if you're, if you're focusing and you're relying on that chilled water temperature to be a certain, uh, certain temperature and you don't, and it, and it kind of goes out of that range, then you're going to lose your capacity to dehumidify. So five takeaways uh, from the engineer. He said, select DOAS units on dew point and the mean uh, coincident wet bulb and not the dry bulb mean coincident wet bulb. Again, these are kind of different factors when you're looking at peak conditions, when you're looking at the um, conditions that you'd select equipment at. It's just not one factor. Um, there's multiple different factors. You select a... Um, a cooling tower different than you would an air handler, different than you would um, a DOAS unit. So those are some of the things and make sure that you select it. But he's, he's saying, you know, focus more on the dew point, selecting it for the dew point to make sure that it does that, uh, an adequate job of dehumidifying um, so you can get that dry air into the building. Uh, he also stated that uh, package DX, now this is, this is, in general, um, when you take, especially when you take a look at the base models, they are not designed for dehumidifying, um, or I would say they're not designed for active dehumidification. I mean, you really have to look at that option specifically um, if that's available on a DX unit. But typically, DX units because they're on and off um, or they kind of modulate in steps, they don't have the capacity to dehumidify air all the time. So you get certain 
uh, conditions um, when it's you know you know going to bypass the coil. That's why you don't want to oversize units, especially if they're kind of on-off units. That that happens a lot in uh, homes. If you select a unit that's uh, way too big, you're going to have a situation where it's going to be cold and clammy um, because the unit's going to fire up. It's going to cool down the building, you know, cool down your home right away, and it's it's not going to wring out the moisture. Um, any moisture that's on left on the coil after after it cycles off gets reabsorbed by the air that that's continually blowing over it. So, uh, same thing with uh, the package DX to a certain extent. So be careful. Um, failure to control building pressures. Obviously, this is kind of critical, and it's not. It's not. You know, he recommended not. It's not always one pressurization. Like you know, set it and forget it. He was suggesting in hot, humid climates or hot, humid conditions, so summertime conditions, um, you have a five Pascal positive, which is really not not that much. But again, you know, you want to be subtle about this. You don't want to have either doors standing wide open because too much building pressurization, or not being able to open them up uh, because of a negative condition. On the flip side, you're going to have winter conditions when it's colder out, and you want to keep them neutral to slightly slightly negative. Again, you don't want to necessarily, and, and this is kind of from a standpoint of protecting the building enclosure itself, um, by making a building positive when it's hot and humid outside, you're protecting, you're pushing air, kind of you're, you're, you're pushing the envelope uh, and making sure that no hot and humid air get into the actual enclosure itself. And on the flip side, the warm and humid air is in the wintertime is really inside the building. So you don't want to kind of you don't want to push that out uh, into the, the you know the building structure, the the exterior wall. So that's why you wanted to have it at a neutral to slightly negative. So that's the kind of the rationale there. All right. So, and the uh, last two two last pieces um, below ambient pipe and insulation. If you have pipe insulation um, and below ambient, what that means is that if if what is in the piping is below ambient conditions, below the dew point, you're going to have the risk of condensation. Obviously, that's why you insulate it. But no insulation is perfect. And some of the things that he, he, you know, wanted to pass on, some experiences that he had, um, was that his recommendation was fiberglass should not be used when for below ambient pipe insulation. Um, and a lot of times you do see that on, um, you know, chilled water applications. He says that not only, you know, does if it gets wet, and again, if, if, if that, you know, the tape, you know, that seals the duct or seals the insulation, um, you know, sometimes it falls off. Sometimes there's a gap. Um, if anything gets wet in that insulation for fiberglass insulation, it's going to derate it. So it's going to continually do a little bit less than it normally would. Now, especially if you have a condition where you are going to have um, metal piping, that is going to be a little bit... Uh, um, another thing, because you're going to get once you get moisture under there, uh, you're going to you're bound to get corrosion under that insulation. So what he recommended basically is is the flexible elastomeric insulation or cellular glass. Probably you know most people are going to go for the flexible elastomeric um, just because it's a little bit easier to apply. 
And the, uh, I guess the, the last thing, the last takeaway that he wanted to make sure that we understood was that when you talk about terminal units, um, VAV boxes, VRF, um, again, anything that's a, a terminal unit can't really pressurize a building. It it's really has to be the main unit in the building that's going to be doing all that pressurization. And also, you're not going to be able to dehumidify a space with those terminal boxes. So that's what you want to be able to avoid there. And then from the contractor's perspective, um, basically, you know, he, he was kind of pointed out the fact that uh, the lead system has really changed products in the market, uh, changed them from a more curing type to a drying type, um, drying type being more water-based. So curing, uh, that's where you're going to get your, you know, volatile compounds. But again, when it's, when something's curing, um, it doesn't really need, it, it takes less time, it's faster, but drying obviously is going to be um, more environmentally friendly, shall we say. But I guess one thing to to point out, he he did say that you know part of the issue, and actually the the drawing component actually folds into this a little bit, was about sealing the ductwork. Um, if you're on a lead project, obviously one of the things is they want to make sure that no uh, construction debris, construction um, uh, dust gets in the ductwork. So what they do is they end up sealing it with plastic. Um, and now he's starting to see um, different, you know, certain conditions um, because they use the water-based mastic on the inside of ductwork and they seal it up. Um, he has situations where he's seen, he started to see mold growth actually appear in that sealed ductwork, um, which obviously isn't a, you know, is, is, is a problem, um, you know. It's like you trade off the you know construction dust for something like mold, you know. Now it's going to be you know which is better. Um, another thing he pointed out was con- you know obviously advances in facade systems. Um, more complex equals more chances for errors. Uh, and then the the last thing that he he um, last couple of things he, he mentioned was the was the fact that. Um, he's starting to see more modular and you know prefab construction um, that is happening, and when you do that, you got to I guess think of like boxes within boxes. I mean, everybody has a kind of a concept of what modular building would be like, um, but when you're actually building kind of a structure, kind of a skeleton, a skeleton um, with these you know structural steel skeleton, you got the concrete slabs for floors, and then you're moving these different modular components in, you know whether they be rooms um, or bathrooms or or what have you. Um, part of the issue is is that when you have, um, you know, depending on what the construction is, you can have large gaps between uh, these different components. And I guess one of the examples that he brought up was he had, um, you know, when you're talking about uh, um, putting together a hotel. So you're stacking stacking these hotel rooms next to each other, but they're not, you know, it's, it's, you know, between, there's some tolerance between these so you can fit them in. Um, it's not a construction fit. It's not, it's just, just not, uh, you know, wall to wall. So there are gaps between these, 
uh, different modular components. And what that leads to is that these gaps are actual avenues for air uh, and moisture. And obviously those two components can lead to mold. So that's one thing that you want to be able to make sure that you watch out for in modular and prefab construction, um, that that doesn't necessarily happen. And again, when you fold into the, you know, building it outside and rain and did you, you know, is the exterior enclosure uh, complete when you're installing these modules or are you getting moisture uh, in between the modules and not letting them dry out? So that's that's uh, a big component. And the last thing that that he really touched on was, you know, there's a lot of testing that might go on in enclosure, uh, but it doesn't necessarily eliminate the need to perform construction observations. Uh, there needs to be some sort of balance between testing and observations because, um, you know, doing a whole building enclosure test is one thing that, that gives you one data point. Um, but if you're trading off uh, field observations for doing a whole building air test, I think you're going in the wrong direction. And that's, that's, that's my personal opinion. That's not necessarily his. So, all right, there you have it, my session notes. As always, those show notes can be found over at hvac360.com slash 161 for the 161st episode. All right, thanks so much for taking the time and listening. I uh, hope it was helpful. Hope you learned something. If you know somebody who's looking to step up their HVAC game, consider sharing this episode or another one of your favorites with them. This is really by far the best thing that you can do to help and spread the word about the podcast. Uh, again, like I mentioned at the top of the show, subscribe over at HVAC360.com for a weekly dose of the written word or browse over to my YouTube channel and subscribe um, if video is more your thing. Lastly, I would greatly be honored, um, or I'd be greatly honored, if you would consider leaving me a five-star review over at Apple Podcasts. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of HVAC 360. I'm Matt Nelson, helping you be the best of the brightest in the field of HVAC. And as always, know what you build and share what you know.